we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. My name is Dr Kate Johnson and I'm joined by Alika Borsak and Yara Alshwarik from Yale University. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which our show is based, the Palawa and Pakana people of Lutruwita. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm living and recording, the Quinnipiac people of the Atlantic shoreline of Connecticut. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we're going to talk to two researchers, one who studies leaves and one who studies frogs. We're going to talk about their journey into science and their research, and also about US and Australian research. And I'm joined for the first half of the episode by Alika Borsak. Alika is a PhD student in the School for the Environment at Yale, and among other things, she studies the 3D internal structure of leaves. And we'll definitely hear about Alika's research later, but... To start with Alika, would you tell us a little bit about your journey into science? Because I know it's a really interesting non-linear pathway. Thanks, Kate. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, yes, non-linear is definitely how I would describe it. Uh, I've always loved science and especially nature. I grew up in the country. But um, as a high school student, I had some more urgent matters to attend to. I was a dancer and really interested in the arts. So for several years, I moved to New York City and lived that life Was a dancer in a modern dance troupe and had a completely different career path and trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, after a few years of that, I decided that I wanted a little bit more and was interested in going back to school. Um, my partner and I at the time <laughs> also just wanted to move to Hawaii. So that coincided with both of us going back to school as adults um, and getting into science. And I think from there, I didn't choose to go into biology initially, which is I'm a plant biologist right now. Um, I, I started in computer science, but I kind of, again, it was nonlinear even within the academic experience, um, but found my way through this inspiration of biomimicry. So I was studying engineering, uh, that ended up being my my major, mechanical engineering for undergrad, um, and became entranced with this idea of bio-inspired engineering, learning from nature's library, and uh, working on photovoltaic solar cells uh, was kind of my passion in terms of the mechanical engineering side or the materials engineering side. Um, But then I realized that leaves were nature's solar cells and they were doing incredible things with earth abundant materials in every nook and cranny of the earth under really harsh circumstances sometimes and so robustly. Uh, So uh, exploring leaves as kind of from the perspective of a material science has been my paradigm ever since. 
and that's, that's taken me into plant ecophysiology. That's, yeah, that's so cool, Alika. I find your pathway so interesting. And just for anyone who doesn't know what the term biomimicry means, could you just give us just a brief definition? Sure, as, as best I can. Uh, my understanding is that biomimicry is using inspiration, not necessarily kind of direct tech transfer, but inspiration certainly from how nature um, has structures or processes um, and using those to solve human problems. Uh, one of, uh, a great example is in the field of photonics um, or optics. So for example, a butterfly's wings have this beautiful structural color um, that's not derived from a chemical pigment, but basically from how the light interacts with the structure itself of the butterfly's wing. And this creates iridescent color um, that can be used as inspiration for kind of nano printing or designing these materials that have this iridescence without using harsh chemicals. So could you tell us a little bit about what your research focuses on now um, to do with leaves? So my research uh, really starts from a place of discovery and observation, which is so old school. Um, <laughs> I feel like you know, a hundred years ago, people were really into microscopy. They still are, but um, really detailed studies of plant anatomy. And since that time, we've had some major technological breakthroughs, especially in, I feel like our lab here at Yale has been really pioneering in this 3D um, microcomputed tomography imaging of plant structures um, led by Craig Broderson. And um, what that allows us to do is to essentially x-ray the inside of plant tissues at the microscopic scale and peer inside, uh, say, a leaf, um, in some cases, kind of for the first time with this new perspective of three dimensions. Because when you slice a leaf very thinly, you kind of destroy that three-dimensional structure. So structures that might be um, prismatic or honeycomb-like might just appear kind of in, in one plane as little dots um, or, you know, a wall of something that's present or absent, but you, you don't get that, that overall structure. So um, my research has started from imaging these uh, structures, these leaves basically, looking at natural variation, characterizing it in three dimensions, and discovering patterns that occur kind of across uh, plant vascular, land plant diversity. Uh, and then what do we do with that? I'm really interested in how structure translates to function. So for example, one of my most recent papers describes how the photosynthetic tissue in the lower leaf, the spongy mesophyll as we call it, um, has this um, very well-conserved uh, pattern of being either prismatic, so this honeycomb structure, or what I would describe as a foam, so more irregular. And these are both types of what are called cellular solids in mechanical engineering. So now that we've classified that and kind of recognized it, the question is, well, what is it doing for the leaf? And very likely it's doing multiple things because leaves have to kind of balance multiple functions at once from intercepting light 
to being mechanically stable and resilient, to transporting water, to having allowing for the diffusion of carbon dioxide and water vapor. Um, so likely, you know, the reason why we see leaves having either one or the other of these patterns, or, or some variation of them, uh, is because it's quite useful. So that's the next step of the work, is to understand why. The work that you've been doing, um, you and Craig, is it's literally revolutionized you know, our understanding of plant anatomy. You've rewritten the textbooks, essentially, which I, I just want everyone to appreciate. <laughs> because, like you say, the way we used to be able to study this, what well, the only available way was to take thin sections, thin cross sections through through leaves, and we thought that the structure, well, no one really knew what the structure of the inside of the leaf looked like, but it looked like little dots, and people thought there was this weird, random arrangement that you found it's actually highly organised in a lot of leaves, and uh, yeah, I just think that's amazing. So we're going to absolutely switch topics now and go to the, the part of the episode where I want to talk about um, the US um, versus Australian sort of crossover. Um, so first of all, I want to ask you, what are the most quintessentially Australian things that, that you think of as an American? Oh no, Kate. <laughs> uh, revealing my biases and ignorance. Um, I thought of a kangaroo right away. Yeah, and of Sydney. Yeah. Um, you know, I had plans right before the pandemic to uh, visit Australia so that I could snorkel the Great Barrier Reef. Um, it didn't end up happening yet, but um, that's another association. <laughs> That's great. Alika, I sort of said before the episode that if you had a question you'd like to ask me about, about the US or about Australia, um, if you could have a, have a think. So do you have a question you'd like to ask me? What's interesting to me about collaboration, my experience with collaboration in the US, is that I absolutely have international collaborators, but I have an extensive network or the strongest network of collaborators nationally here in the U.S. Um, I know there's so many wonderful labs and people in Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania. <laughs> Tasmania. Um, but do you ever feel isolated or what's your experience with you know, kind of networking collaboration as um, an Australian? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a great question. <laughs> Thanks, Alika. Um, yeah, so that's it's something that as being a Tasmanian my whole life, I guess I'd never really put much thought into. Also because, you know, I, I did my undergrad in Tasmania, went straight through, did my PhD there. So I didn't have a, a comparison. But I realise now coming here how lucky I was to be in a lab that was really quite international. So we every every year we'd have people visiting, people from Spain, from the US, from from all sorts of places around the world. So I didn't realize like how much exposure I was kind of getting to the international research community, especially in our field. So I, I feel very very lucky about um, lucky for that. I guess uh, the difference might be getting to conferences is a little more complicated so when you sort of that's not something that you 
encounter so much early in your PhD. It's later, later in your PhD um, when you're thinking, oh, I'd really like to, you know, get in with the international research community. The conferences are often in the US or in Europe, so it's quite a long way away. So it can be a bit, <laughs> a bit difficult, especially sort of money-wise, to get there. But, but there, there are grants and things, and I think that. Um, in a world with uh, social media and Zoom and everything too, it provides us with this opportunity to be a lot more connected than it once would have been. Yeah, so thanks so much, Alika, for being on the show. It was a, a real pleasure to speak to you about your exciting work. Thank you, Kate, anytime. <laughs> Stay with us for part two, where we'll hear from PhD student Yara Alshwerik about freezing frogs. Hello and welcome to That's What I Call Science. I'm Dr Kate Johnson and for this second half of the episode I'm joined by Yara Alshwerik. She's a PhD student in the School of the Environment at Yale and unlike our other three Yale-based guests, um, Yara doesn't study plants, she studies frogs and we'll get into that later but first of all Yara, can you tell us about how you got into science? Absolutely. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and after I finished high school there, I had this wonderful opportunity to go abroad and study in the U.S. So I ended up at the University of California, Los Angeles, and I was generally interested in science and biology, and so I started doing the biology major, and I wasn't specifically interested in frogs or ecology just yet but I had this chance to do a field biology course, and the theme happened to be herpetology, which is the study of reptiles and amphibians. And that was my first experience with doing a full research project, specifically a field-based project. So I worked in a small group. My group and I got to do everything from design a project, find a question that we wanted to answer and then we went out into the field and we went camping all over California and I just fell in love with lizards and snakes and amphibians. I thought they were the coolest group of organisms. There's just so much diversity and behavior and morphology and everything you can think about and I also just loved being in the field and asking ecological questions. After that I did something a little bit different. I did a master's degree in marine science, um, but I knew I wanted to continue in the world of herpetology and dive more into evolutionary biology. And that's how I ended up where I am today, um, doing this PhD program that's focused on ecology and evolutionary biology of wood frogs. That's so cool. And I know that your study species is also very cool. Um, They have this amazing adaption to cold temperatures. Could you tell us a little bit about your study species and about what happens when they get really cold? Yes, I can talk about this for hours. Um, This was also a very interesting um, field that I got into because I, before I started this program, I didn't really know much about wood frogs and their freeze tolerance ability, which is 
one of the coolest things about them. So these frogs are widespread all over North America. Their southern limits are in Georgia and Alabama. They go all the way into the Arctic parts of Canada and Alaska. And one of the reasons they can survive and thrive in these very cold um, regions is because of their freeze tolerance ability. So over winter, they can freeze solid with up to 60% of their body water as ice. It's absolutely crazy. Um, very few vertebrate species, so very few animals can do this. Um, and physiologically, what happens is their cells don't freeze. Um, so with humans or like other animals, what happens when you um, freeze or like how freezing is lethal is because the cells themselves freeze and um, they can burst. But for the frogs, they have this adaptation where they increase production of various molecules um, like sugars, so glucose, um, things called urea and glycerol. And the more they pump into their cells, the more their cells are able to withstand freezing. The cells do not freeze because of the um, higher concentration of those molecules, but the extracellular space, so the space outside the cells in the frog's body, can freeze solid, and that's totally fine for the frogs. They can withstand that. And there's really um, interesting variation in the degree of this tolerance ability. So you can imagine that for a frog that lives in the Arctic parts of Alaska where you have winters that can last for months and months, up to six months, and they can stay frozen and tolerate minimums up to minus 18.1 degrees Celsius versus the wood frog populations in Alabama where it never gets that cold um, and they might not even go into a freezing state during winter. So I'm really interested in um, the variation in this ability and trying to understand it from a evolutionary biology perspective. I'm also interested in what happens at a molecular level in terms of gene expression. So looking at what kind of genes and pathways are involved as a frog is entering and exiting this freezing process. It almost seems like uh, a fantasy sort of made up superpower. <laughs> it's so cool. On a normal day in the lab when you're, when you're doing experiments or if you're out in the field, what, what, does, what does studying this look like? What do you actually do? Oh, that's a very good question because my... Days are so variable depending on what time of year it is. The field season for us usually is in the spring because that is when um, the frogs come out of hibernation and they begin to breed. So they lay eggs in um, these ponds and as the um, season progresses, the eggs develop into tadpoles and soon by Midsummer, the tadpoles will metamorph, so that's when your tadpole changes into a, the terrestrial form, which is a frog, and they exit the pond and spend time in the forest until fall. And because of that, we are usually more active in the spring um, 
like the frogs. We're out in the field, either collecting, surveying. Um, if we're planning experiments, then we will also be setting things up in the lab. Um, I've also had some fall field seasons because I was interested in collecting some adult frogs. So that involves some night collecting um, because that is the best time to find adult frogs is to go out at night on a rainy night. That's when they have increased activity and would have better chances of locating a higher number of frogs. And if I'm running experiments, um, my days are usually spent in the lab, setting things up, measuring. I also do a lot of bench work, so wet lab work, which involves DNA extractions. Um, again, those would be days in the lab spent um, on the bench working. Uh, nowadays, I'm spending more time in front of the computer. Um, I have a lot of really cool data that I am trying to analyze and process um, and start to write papers <laughs> and work on my PhD dissertation. So in short, there is a lot of variability day to day, um, but it's always something exciting. Yara always seems to be working very hard. <laughs> we sit opposite each other. And she's always always writing, working away. So <laughs> I'm always very impressed. Um, so Yara, I now want to ask you sort of an Australian-US crossover question. And um, if you don't know the answer, that's fine. Um, but I was just wondering if you do you know any researchers in Australia? And if you do, or even if you don't, how do you, do you imagine that research differs from country to country, PhD research. What, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I actually don't personally know someone, um, but my PhD advisor has worked with Rick Schein, who has done a lot of work on cane toads. And yeah, it's one of the really famous stories for rapid adaptation, invasive species. Um, it's a very cool story. So I, I always think about that example when I think about Australia. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting that you bring up cane toads. And, of course, I mean, you study frogs. It makes sense, you know, the cane toad example. So how does that relate to your research, that idea that I assume this other sort of toad closely-ish related species has, has evolved quite rapidly does that give you insight into what's happening in wood frogs or is that um is that an evolution type adaption that they're showing yeah so for the cane toads um specifically the example of the rapid adaptation of black snakes to the cane toads so black snakes um rapidly adapted to these toxic toads because the, as the black snakes were eating them, um, they were dying because the toads were toxic. So yeah, these black snakes um, evolved like two mechanisms in a way. So one is they um, evolve like higher resistance to the toxin so that when they eat them, you know, they're not um, killed. The other adaptation is that they um, developed like a stronger aversion to toads, so they weren't even like consuming them as much as part of their diet. And there were experiments that showed that it is very likely, and you know, a genetic adaptation and not just a behavior thing. Um, for my work, I think that just seeing examples of adaptation happening rapidly is overall just 
really great evidence that things can happen really uh, fast. I'm in my work. I'm also trying to look at how wood frogs in general can adapt to the environment and adapting to warmer climates, as we're seeing with climate change. So just seeing that evidence and how it's happening in the wild um, is really useful for my work. That's, that's really cool. And you're teaching me about Australia. <laughs> you're teaching me about Australian ecosystems. So Yara, is there anything that you'd like to ask me about the US versus Australia or how we're similar or different in research or in culture? Anything? Yeah, I'm curious what you know about the herpetology research scene in Australia. I know there's tons of herps there, and I'm just curious if you know of anything exciting going on or have come across anything interesting. Yes, so at our university, actually, in Tasmania, there's a really cool herpetology group, and they study this one very specific species of lizard. And I cannot remember what it's called. <laughs> I'm really sorry if anyone from Utah who works on these lizards is listening. Um, but what they do is they exhibit um, family structures. So they, they have sort of social relationships with each other, which is really cool. And I think maybe a little bit unique in the herpetology world. Um, they also give birth to live young which might also be unique. I don't know, you'd be better versed to, <laughs> to comment on that than me. But I know that there's a lot of really cool research going on in terms of um, family dynamics, sibling to sibling sort of um, things that can be scaled up to, to what happens um, with humans, you know, the sort of how different family structures evolve um, can be interpreted from these, these groups of lizards. So I think that's really interesting. No, that's really cool. And yeah, I think it is very unique. I don't really know of any other species that have social structures. So that's very exciting. And I, I need to go look this up and read more about it. I'll find out what the species is called and then maybe it'll be easier to look up. Well, thank you so much, Yara. It was such a joy to talk to you and have you on the show. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. I'd like to thank today's guests and, as always, thank you for listening to That's What I Call Science. We hope you enjoyed the show today. And if you like this episode, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or by visiting our website, thatsscience.org. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. Want to know more about science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine? Then tune in to Edge Radio 5pm on Sundays to hear That's What I Call Science. You can also find us on all of your favourite podcast streaming services. Be sure to like and subscribe us on any of our socials. 
At That's What I Call Science, we love bringing engaging content to all sorts of audiences, and this includes youth. So if you're a teacher at a local school here in Tasmania and have students interested in science, technology, engineering, maths or medicine topics, then let us know and we can come into your school and get them on the radio talking about their favourite exciting scientific ideas.